Our second reading is from the letter of 1 John, chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. The word of the Lord. Thank you. As the kids are heading out, um, let me just say, it is really good to be back with you guys. I had the chance to worship in a lot of different churches, different denominations, around the world even, sort of, and um, I missed being here worshiping with you guys. Uh, this is my favorite place to worship on a Sunday, um, and I'm very glad to be back here. Um, somebody said, are you wearing black because you're mourning that your sabbatical is over? No, I saw the, went to the Johnny Cash Museum and decided black is the color to always wear. Um, I do want to thank uh, the staff and the church council and all leaders who have been here week in and week out for taking things on. I never once worried about things, and I knew um, through the years we have such a great staff, team, leaders, people caring in every way from you know, little kids to pastoral care to prepping on Sunday to music to people greeting and bringing coffee, all the things that are happening week in and week out on a Sunday, but as well in the rest of the week. And I'm just grateful for a team of people that enabled me to walk away and never once worry about anything. And I really didn't. And so thank you to our staff and church council. Um, and in general, for the church support, I really did feel loved and supported by being sent away um, for three months, um, being able to be blessed by knowing that I did not have to be on doing these things, and it is a unique gift to be able to do that. Um, just briefly, I'm not really going to get in-depth on it this morning. I'm glad to talk to you one-on-one -on -one or you know, other times, but what did you do? I mostly was doing nothing. 
Um, and it was a wonderful doing nothing. <laughs> Did some travel. Um, I was down in Florida, as you can see, got to hit the ocean a little bit. I also went to England, was a part of some church services over there. I had a great time both at the beach and in England, um, and also was in Vienna. It was very exciting at some times of what I was doing. I had a great day by myself in the old city of York, this like, you know, 1200s walled city that is just amazing. Sarah and I had a wonderful time uh, one day in London. It was really neat. We did all sorts of things from like a random pop-up walk-by church service that we ran into that was celebrating the life of Charles Wesley to the war museum or war rooms of Churchill. Um, I had one day that I was driving from Nashville into Kentucky while listening to Wendell Berry and seeing the rolling hills. And I was just like, God is present with me wherever I am. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Um, so I really, I really did enjoy it. And one of the best things, and I wish everyone uh, in our modern world had the chance to do this even for four or five, six weeks, if not for three months, to turn off your email, or it might be Slack or Teams, depending on what you're in, turn off your email, get rid of social media on your phone, and be okay with it. It was amazing. But at first, it was really uh, unnerving. I was actually scared and nervous, like when cranky. About a week in, I was feeling a bit tense. And I said, Sarah, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I should be relaxed. But I think it was something to do with not having those regular things that I'm checking on my phone that kind of makes me feel normal. And that's a little unfortunate. That email or social media or these other things are what we use to check in and feel okay about ourselves. So it was great to be able to put that aside and even, even to like leave the phone in another room and to do thing like that, a thing like this, read a book, an actual whole book. And I know that many of us who are readers know that we're, our ability to read long reading has actually gotten much worse, and that's just true because we're too phone-oriented now. Our ability to read a 300-page book is almost impossible. We have to retrain ourselves. So I was doing that, reading biographies, some history, listening to audible books, really enjoying that, Um, spent some really good time in prayer by myself, even just the regular rhythm of morning prayer and reading three psalms and two scriptures every morning. Um, I was praying and still praying through the list of a thousand plus names of people who have ever been a part of this church and stopping and giving thanks and weeping over those who are gone and, uh, and just being grateful for this community. I did sense God talking to me specifically about two things I need to work on. One is listening better and loving people better. Listening and loving. Listening to him and being a better listener of others and cultivating a deeper love for other people out of my love for God and God's love for me. And then lo and behold, Dean assigns me to preach this week on loving one another. So let's just jump right into it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, one of John's repeated refrains, one of the choruses he sings again and again, is to love one another. We read this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So what's interesting about this is most of us know about love your enemies, love your neighbors. That's Jesus' refrain. But John, again and again, in his gospel and here in 1 John, says, love one another. And he's specifically talking about the church community, that there's supposed to be a unique love inside of the church community, a local church. 
that transforms relationships and is evident to the world outside. He says it again and again, love your brothers and sisters, love one another, love the brothers. If you don't love your brother, you're a murderer, love one another. He says it over and over again as a rhetorical tool in the Greek world that was a way of saying this is really, really important. It was a way of highlighting or underscoring something that you wanted to say. We feel like it's a little bit redundant, like quit saying the same thing. And it was a way of just saying, this is about the most important thing. If you, if you get nothing else, the core of Christian life is that you love one another. Start there. Do that. And fulfill the commandments by doing so. Love one another. But he also gets a little bit harsh, which he does sometimes when he says in verses 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever doesn't love your brother and sister does not, uh, does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Basically, if you are not actively loving people within your church community regularly, he's saying, you are abiding in death and there's no eternal life in you. Now, John is very black and white. He tends to talk about darkness, light, good, evil, murder, love. And he's doing that again, for rhetorical effect. But the point is this. This is absolutely clear and serious. There is one thing you need to live out. Love one another. So that's the big idea. One of the big ideas of the whole of First John is not that we love one another in order to have life or eternal life, but our love for one another reveals the authenticity of our faith. Our love or lack of love reveals, do we believe and what do we believe? And John is saying, you cannot say you love God without loving your brothers and sisters. You can't call yourself a Christian without that. So the question is this, how? How do we do it or what does it look like? Well, three things to kind of make it a little bit simpler out of 1 John 3. Our love for one another should be practical, relational, and gospel-driven, okay? Very simple. First, our love for one another should be practical. He says it quite clearly himself in verses 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Peter Kuzmich was my missions professor in seminary. He was also the Billy Graham of Eastern Europe before the wall came down and after the wall. He's one of the greatest evangelists in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. He was a missionary who started churches all over the place. I got to travel with him uh, around the year 2000 to the former Yugoslavia, and he was showing us some of the work that they were doing caring for people in the community and how their work in the community won them kind of the support of uh, Muslim and atheist and other denominations, mayors and all these things. And this is what he said. You cannot, you cannot give a person the bread of life without giving them bread for life. You cannot give a person the bread of life without giving them bread for life. If they're physically hungry, you start there 
so that they can hear about their spiritual need. Jesus, of course, talked about this numerous times. One of his parables was called the sheep and the goats, where he's saying, here's the difference between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. Those who are in are those who, uh, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. As you've done it to the least of these, your brothers and sisters, you've done it unto me. Caring for actual needs. The rich ruler goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, obey the commandments. And the guy says, I've done all of those. I'm a good religious, moral, upstanding guy. And then Jesus says, okay. Um, not the rich young ruler, the, but he says, like, who is my neighbor? Like, he says, go and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, a certain man was going from here to there, and he was beaten up and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And a couple of religious guys, moral upstanding religious guys, passed by and stayed away from him. But a Samaritan, his sworn enemy, got off of his, his ride and climbed down and cared for the man. What he was doing in that process of caring for the man who was beaten up on the side of the road was very dangerous. The robbers could have come around the corner at any moment. It was very dirty. He got his hands dirty with the blood and the grossness of this guy beaten up and left for dead. He put him on his own ride and took him into town and in the village there, helped care for him and paid for, at his own cost, the, the care and recovery of this man. His love for this enemy of his was dangerous, it was time-consuming, it was costly, it was dirty, and Jesus is saying, yes, love is very practical. It's very hands-on. It means getting involved. What's interesting is that uh, the word choice that John uses here, he says this, um, if you have the world's goods, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, two words that I want us to, to fix on are the word goods and heart because they're translated differently in other variations of the English language. That word goods um, is often translated wealth. If you have the world's wealth and see your brother in need. But the word is not the normal word for money. There's a different word saying that you have financial wealth. The word that's used here is a word uh, that's it's this word, bion, B-I-O-N, from which we get the word biology. It's the word bio, bios, life. If you have the world's life, and basically, it was, a, it was a way of talking about all of your resources, the source of your life, the wealth of all that you have, your social capital, all of your relationships, your emotional well-being. Do you know caring for somebody who's difficult is emotionally taxing? Your time. We value our time. I just want my time to be my time all of your resources, and that includes whatever you value about yourself, your body, your mind, your talents, your skills, your abilities, your experiences. John is saying all of those things, whatever you have that is a resource, whatever you have in and of yourself that you value, if you see somebody else who's lacking and you don't offer it to them, if you close your heart against them. And that word heart is not the normal word for heart. Um, it's, it's normally translated compassion, but can actually be translated your gut or your intestines. It's kind of gross. But it's the core of all of your emotions. 
So basically what he's saying is, if you're not heart-wrenched, if you're not emotionally turned, and you know if you, if you care for somebody, if you've had a kid who's gone through something really difficult or a close friend, you can be heart-wrenched for them. And John is saying, yes, if you have resources and you see somebody in need and you're not heart-wrenched. Here's what I've realized, though, is I'm not naturally heart-wrenched unless I have proximity to a person. Unless I'm with them and engaged in their life regularly. So if John is saying you need to look and see the needs around you, in order to do that, I need to actually be with people. In order to desire to meet their needs out of my resources, in order to know their needs, I need to know the people. So first, love is practical, but second, it is relational. One of the common themes in John um, and in the New Testament in general is the family metaphor. John talks about brothers and sisters, loving your brothers, loving your sisters, loving one another. We are all children of God, so children, brothers, sisters. He's talking about us as a family, the church that he's writing to as a family. Now, if you've grown up with a family, and particularly if you've had siblings, you know that there's a unique relationship with having a brother or a sister. Especially this, it's if you have brothers or sisters who are close in age with you, they were probably the very first people you ever played with, who you rode bikes with, played hide-and-seek with. You probably had unique family traditions with your siblings. One of mine was with my older sister, and it was car rides. So car rides back in the 70s and 80s did not involve these things called seat belts. It just was a seat with no belts. There might have been belts, but they were tucked underneath, and you didn't use them. And so one of the traditions in our family on long car trips was when my older sister was ready to take a nap or fall asleep, she would get to lie down on the whole back seat, and I would get bumped into the little foot area. (laughs) It was a strange tradition. I didn't understand it. I didn't even question it. I just thought, oh, I guess that's where I go when it's time for her to take a nap. Families have traditions like this, and you just accept them sometimes. Cousins can be like that, too. I had the pleasure of watching my own kids grow up near their cousins. We would have regular cousin dinners on a like Wednesday night or Tuesday after Tuesday night. Um, my kids and their cousins went with the moms down to Florida regularly, did these long road trips. They would uh, had favorite movies they would watch together, like a famous Sinbad movie called House Guest that nobody has ever seen, but they have watched a million times. They used to play a game, the boy cousins, when they were together, played one of the games they played was called the man game. The man game involved the four older cousins forcing the two younger cousins to do feats of strength to prove whether they were now men or not. (laughs) Inevitably, the younger cousins never reached the feats of strength, or the, the bar would always get moved when they were about to achieve it. Oh, sorry, you're still a kid. You're not a man yet. And the younger cousins just knew that this was how it went. You know and trust people when you know them at that level of intimacy that brothers and sisters and cousins can have. You're not afraid to be yourself. The family of God. The ancient Near East had an even deeper, richer understanding of family than we do. You know that if you lived in the ancient world, you would have lived on the same property as your family. Uh, All the brothers would have shared the same land. 
You would, it, so whether you were single or married, had kids or didn't, you always had cousins and aunts and uncles and people to care for, younger and older. Everyone lived together. Your entire survival depended on one another. You celebrated together and you wept together and you cared for one another and you survived together. Your entire identity and purpose in life was built around the family and clan. And that's why it is so radical what Jesus does when he comes along and redraws family, no longer around blood or marriage, but around faith in him. And you cannot overstate the radical nature of the gospel community that the church was becoming. And John is carrying that on, saying love one another as brothers and sisters, as the new family of God. And at the the core of this is that love requires relationships. Deep family relationships. And that's hard for us because we value, we prize independence. You know, we think that to be successful, you have to be independent. To be successful in this life, in modern America, you have to be independent financially, independent physically, able to do everything on your own, literally independent to the point where I don't need anybody's help. I've got this. That's what it means to be successful in some of our definition. And we, on top of that, value autonomy, meaning I want to have the freedom to do what I want with no one else having a say in it. And as a result of doing that for decades here in the West, we are the loneliest culture ever. In Robert Putnam's seminal book, Bowling Alone, he looks at over, I want to say it was like 500,000 interviews over 25 years. And what he identifies is that our social capital, which is the very fabric of our connections with one another, has deteriorated over the past decades. He writes, or the summary of it is, we belong to fewer organizations that meet. We know our neighbors less. We meet with friends less frequently. We even socialize with our families less often. We are even, he says, bowling alone, even though more Americans are bowling now than were ever before. We're just no longer in bowling leagues or teams. Changes in technology, entertainment, work, family structures have contributed to this growing loneliness. And on top of that, we've gotten the more recent writings of Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the U.S., Because when Bowling Alone came out, it was 23 years ago. And he was talking about the 80s and 90s. But in recent time, our current Surgeon General says, loneliness is one of the most profound problems in the US. About half of Americans are experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. And he talked about his own struggle with loneliness in an article in the New York Times this April. He said in 2017, he was coming off of his first stint as Surgeon General, and when he came off of it, all of a sudden he'd lost all of his work colleagues, and he was struggling with loneliness. And what he writes is, I had largely neglected my friendships during my first tenure as Surgeon General, convincing myself that I had to focus on work and couldn't do both friends and work at a high level. What got him out? What got him out was relationships. He writes this, For me, it took more than a year of struggling with the pain and shame of loneliness, but I eventually found my footing. I didn't do it on my own. My mother, father, and sister called me every day to remind me they loved me for who I was. 
And my friends Sonny and Dave committed to doing video conferences once a month and texting and talking weekly about the issues that weighed on our minds. During one of my lowest lows, the people in my life patched me up with their acts of love and connection. What got him out of his loneliness? The people in his life extending love and connection. You and I are created for relationships. We desire to be known, really known, for people to know deep down everything about us and still love and accept us. We are not made to be alone. But relationships are hard. They require openness and vulnerability, commitment, trust, and interdependence, a willingness to say, I need help, and the humility to ask for it. At Christ Church Vienna, one of the things we have talked about in our vision and values is being extended family. We are a gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. And that idea of extended family means this, that whether you're struggling with loneliness right now or whether you feel relationally full, we all see that we have a need for one another. Any church, any local church, should be a place where whether you're married or single, you have kids or not, that you can push in deeper and find relational connections. You can find brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and extra grandparents. But to do so involves actually stepping deeper into relationship with one another. If you've been here from before COVID, you know this great graphic that, uh, that I designed a few years ago. It looks like this. It's amazing, pretty great, right? Right? You actually have to be here to see people regularly. But here's the idea. The idea is this, is that coming once a month on a Sunday morning, you might be the red dot who really doesn't know anyone else. If you come at least regularly, you start to know people as acquaintances. You're like, oh, I think I recognize her. She goes to Christchurch Vienna. But we do small groups in the fall and in the spring, and we do that intentionally so that over the course of three or four years, you might get to know 30 or 40 or 50 people as more than acquaintances. You know something about their life, their background, where they went to school, where they grew up, something they've done on a trip. Maybe even you know them like neighbors to the point where you could ask for an egg or a cup of sugar. But ultimately, our calling in life is to develop close friends, which you do kind of on your own in deep commitment and relational connection, opening yourself up and connecting to one another. And this is what we're called into is a sort of relational levels that can't be done just online or once a month. It involves proximity and regularity over time with one another. To love one another like family involves presence, a willingness to be vulnerable, to commit and trust, and it's costly. It's really hard. It's hard to admit I need you, and it's hard to be willing to give my buy-on, all my resources in life for you. In order to do it, we need the gospel. And that's the third thing is love is practical, it is relational, and thirdly, it is gospel-driven. The gospel defines what love is meant to look like. In verse 16, John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives 
for the brothers and sisters. We have to lay down our lives for one another. John is saying this, if you want to know what love is, love is defined by the cross. Now, that's different than most of our modern versions of what love is. One of the common modern Western American versions of love is that, that it's about romance and attraction. Someone who makes me happy, someone who fills me. But God's definition of love is not whatever you want it to be. God's definition of love is in the cross. It's the gospel itself. In verse 16, he says that he laid down his life for us. This is what love is. Love involves humility, sacrifice, grace, revelation. Think about those things in relation to defining love by the nature of what Jesus did for us. He is God Almighty, but he humbles himself for us. He doesn't use his power, his authority, his position for his own good, but gives it up for our gain. He sacrifices himself, suffering and dying on the cross for our sin in our place. And through the cross, God offers mercy and pardon to us, his love to us, the guilty, the undeserving, the unlovable. And because of the cross of Christ, we know who God is and what his love is like. And through the cross of Christ, we can experience a relationship with God and know true and eternal life. Our love should be the same. We also, it says in verse 16, the end of it, we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And in that sense, if you want to love somebody else, whether it's your spouse or your kid or a neighbor, it should be humble and sacrificial, filled with grace, loving the unlovable, and ultimately revealing God and his gospel, pointing people to who God is and what he has done, pointing people to the God of the universe, not to you. To love somebody is to seek the best for them, with the word best being defined by God. Now, this is really hard if you're a parent. If you're a parent of a kid, you could say, okay, I want the best for them, but the best is not what they want, necessarily, nor is it what you want, necessarily. It is always what God wants for them, necessarily. To love them is to say, I want them to know God and to experience God in a transforming way, the end. How do we do that? How do we love anybody like that? We can't. We can't, apart from the gospel, transforming us. We need the gospel in order to love one another. So again, the modern view of love is sort of attraction and fulfillment. And what ends up happening is we hunger for people we find attractive. We have a hunger inside of us for people we find attractive. And however you're defining attraction, it might not be physical attraction, it might be other things we're looking for. Tim Keller, in a sermon that he preached on John 13, summed it up this way. We are a big bundle of needs. We are a big bundle of needs for power, comfort, approval, control. And when you sense someone has the ability to meet those needs, you hungrily make a beeline for them and you call that love. I love you often means 
you meet my needs. I will be in a relationship with you if it is fulfilling my goals and meets my needs. All of us, all of us build our identity on something. Dean talked about this last week. You can think yourself a zookeeper. And there's things with hippos. Go and listen to it. All of us build our identity on something. We look to something or someone to actually to save us. If you build your identity on your career or your kids' success or happiness, on your looks, on being liked, approved, then there will be limits to your love for other people. Because anyone we perceive as more successful or beautiful or whose kids are better than our kids, anyone who's more likable and popular will be a threat to us. We can't love them. Or we will simply use them, try to get close to them, try to get our kids connected to them, try to connect ourselves to them in order to feel loved, to advance ourselves, to get the things we're after. People become a threat or a commodity. Why does Cain murder his brother? Because his brother is righteous and he's evil. Okay, but behind that is this. Cain was insecure about his status before God. And Cain didn't grasp the grace of God and why Abel's offering was accepted. See, Cain was thinking, I did the religious thing, I made an offering, therefore God should bless me. But the gospel never does this. It does not tie our actions to God's approval and acceptance of us. And when you realize that and let that sink in, you never feel inferior to somebody else if they're succeeding or being blessed. You don't feel threatened by other people's success. Nor do you feel superior or self-righteous if you're doing well. Like the good things that happen in your life aren't necessarily because you're great. God loves and accepts you on the basis of Jesus, not the basis of what you have done. And as a result, when we really let the gospel sink in, we don't see other people as competitors for God's love, which means I'm able to love them because I'm not competing with them. The cross is how we know the love of God. At the beginning of that verse, verse 16, the first part of it, verse 16, John says, by this we know love. You know, when I read this a number of times, I've always thought, okay, by this we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. Here's the example of what love looks like. It looks like the cross. But the word know here is one of the unique words of know that has to do with experiential knowledge, relational, intimate knowledge. It would have been used in the Old Testament of a different kind of knowing. So it's a know that is experiential, relational, and intimate. John is saying this. This is how we experience love. How we actually feel loved. Jesus laid down his life for us. In other words, you and I cannot know what love is apart from the transforming experience of the gospel. Only the gospel can release us from our Cain-like bondage to jealousy, insecurity, constant neediness, 
to truly love one another, the love of God must become real to us, something we know, experience, and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came and died for us so that we could know love. You call us to love one another, and that's really hard. It's hard to get messy and dirty, to give of ourselves, to care about others, to be present. But you can fill us with a love that we need desperately. So if we've felt that and experienced that again and again or never have, may this week be one of those times where we deepen, dip again into the well of your great love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Oh, how great is your amazing grace that took us